like I okay THT has glimpses of creation, but he is such a low efficiency scorer that I can't possibly imagine that he, he can have a positive impact on the offense. First of all, I'm here to erase any pro Taylor Horton Tucker propaganda. We're not we're not doing that. You know this is <laughs> this isn't this isn't the Lakers television network. This isn't ESPN when the Lakers are playing the Knicks and they're trying to hype up young players while ignoring all the Knicks young players. This is a good analytical podcast. And Taylor Horton Tucker right. has been bad his You're whole right. career. Like let's just call, like he's just not good. This is Hot Hand Theory. This is a podcast where we talk about the NBA and break things down from an analytical perspective. I'm your co-host, XJ. As always, he is my brilliant co-host, Jeff. Jeff, we got a lot to talk about. We don't have as much time as we normally do to do it. Uh, How are you feeling? How are you feeling about the Knicks? We've seen a lot happen over the last week, week and a half. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that we've seen so far. I'm doing great. Uh, holiday season, you know, family's coming into town this week. Excited to see everyone. Um, not as great on the Knicks, I would say. Um, nice win against the Raptors last night. But I feel like we're really starting to come to terms, terms with the fact that this defense just isn't good. Um, that was an embarrassing performance by the Knicks last night. Just absolutely embarrassing the the Raptors scored 130 points in regulation and I don't think they played well offensively I thought they blew a number of transition opportunities I thought they missed an abundance of open threes and not just kind of open threes empty gym threes that 25 27 out of 30 teams in the league are going, going to make any team pay for um look you lose Mitchell Robinson, that's brutal. He he I, I think that he is the scheme is built around him. It, it's Tibbs doesn't want to give up shots at the rim, and Mitchell Robinson is one of the best free safeties in the league. I think the more underrated loss was Emmanuel Quickly. Everybody who listens to this knows we both love Quickly. But I think there are a lot of people who don't understand why Quickly is so impactful. And I think we kind of saw it last night because sure Mitch is going to help you at the rim, but more important than having rim deterrence is having another guy who can play free safety, who stops the guys from getting to the rim. And when you have quickly hovering off the ball, roaming off the ball, waiting to stunt at any moment and, and, and start the scramble as opposed to letting the guy get all the way to the basket and forcing Mitch's help you have somebody who's basically instead of deterring the shot, you have somebody taking away the shot. And what I saw last night was Steven Chenzo and Hart trying to fill that void. And the Knicks just weren't as remote, weren't remotely as um, on a string. The chemistry wasn't there. Hart or Steven Chenzo would make these random helps and stunts and nobody would be there to make the next rotation because it wasn't being anticipated. And the result was just all of these wide open looks that the Knicks, frankly, got pretty lucky that the Raptors missed. The Raptors shot 35% from three. The Knicks shot 60% from three. If you shoot 60% from three and a bad team only shoots 35% from three, if you score 136 points in regulation, this needs to be a blowout. It, it just needed to be. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to rain on 
Knicks fans parade who after two tough losses against two of the best teams in the league were like, okay, yes, the Knicks are back on track. I, I apologize to anyone who's trying to spin that optim- uh, um, positively, but I just, I don't, I don't think this was a positive game at all. I think the Knicks need to play way better. The only spin that I can see where you're kind of optimistic is, okay, the Knicks were missing two of their five most important players and got a win against a team that kind that gives them trouble historically. But even then, this isn't the same Raptors team. You know, talk about the Raptors for a little bit. Siakam is just, I don't know what he is now. I mean, look, we're talking about a guy who was a legitimate all-NBA player for multiple seasons. And maybe that guy is still in there. But as long as he's going to be forced into the power forward role and he can't shoot outside of 15 feet, he's killing you on, on offense. He's not He's not as he's effective. He's got to be a five. He's got to be a five if he can't shoot. There's no way he can be a four and, and not able to shoot at all. Right. He he wasn't a threat at all. And that's this is what Tom Thibodeau does. If, if you have a glaring weakness in terms of shooting – He's going to exploit it because he would much rather Pascal Siakam took 10 wide open threes than the Raptors get uh, 10, 10 looks inside the paint. And I, if you give up 130 points to that team, Gary Trent Jr. for some, for whatever reason has the yips. He can't make anything. Um, Scotty Barnes and OG Ananobi were pretty much the only two Raptors who showed up last night. Um they both played well on offense, at least. They they were both hunted defensively. It was interesting to watch. Um, Julius Randle, I mean, I guess Julius Randle is just a bad matchup for those guys because he was just, especially Barnes. I, I thought OG Ananobi did an okay job. Like our, uh, Wally Zerbiak had this rant after the Randle baseline and one where he was like, oh, Ananobi's known as a really good defender, but Randle's just hunting this matchup. And I was just like, Man, I feel like the Raptors would be fine with that shot every single time. Like I thought Ananobi did a did a decent job on Randall, and it shocked me that the Raptors kept going back to Barnes on him. I think they should have had Ananobi on him the whole game. Um, and Barnes on RJ Barrett, and I think they would have been way better off. This is just a long-winded way of me saying that the Raptors aren't very good, and they especially aren't very good on offense. The Knicks had a huge or a decent shooting luck gap. And they only won the game by six points and they allowed 130 points. I just, I don't know. Headed into this road trip, I don't think the vibe should be super high in New York, but I hope, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I hear all of your points. I think all those are really well made and well heard for sure from me. Uh, I think I have share a lot of your concerns. For me on the defensive end. Actually, to be clear, did you just compliment yourself for hearing what I said? Did you just say I, yeah, they yeah. were they were well heard they were by well me? Well heard by me. Yeah, yes. You, yes it is, you're it a good is listener. A, you're a good friend. Is, <laughs> I'm pointing out to our audience the fact that I'm a very good listener. And yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> you have to listen to be able to, to actually give an honest assessment. I've listened to you and I, it was well heard. And, uh, that being said, um, I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway aside or actually even including all of the open threes that they gave up because it it can be argued. And I think you kind of started to say this with Siakam getting all of his three point attempts that that's kind of how you beat this Raptors team is like you let them shoot themselves out of it. They have no good shooters unless you think Scotty Barnes is like a real legitimate sniper from three, which I don't. Uh, you know, they have OG who can shoot and that's about it right now because like you said, Gary Trent, I don't know what's wrong with him, but the rest of the team is not, they're not good shooters. So that's kind of how you beat this Raptors team. But the other way you beat them is keep them out of transition, which the Knicks did not do early in the game. 
I the biggest takeaway for me, uh, as far as this Knicks defense and in the specifically in the Raptors game, was the rebounding. The rebounding has been an issue. And earlier in the year, the Knicks calling card has been their defensive rebounding uh, on the defensive end. And they were for a very long time, the best offensive rebounding team and the best defensive rebounding team. And if you are crushing the boards in that way, you will win games no matter who you play. Because if you're holding teams to one opportunity to one shot attempt, and they're not like shooting the lights out and completely dominating you from an effective field goal percentage standpoint, you are going to win a lot of games by holding teams to a reasonable uh, point total. The defensive rebounding was not good. Toronto against this Knicks team last uh, the, the other night, 38.5% offensive rebounding percentage. Guess what? The previous game against the Knicks, 41.4 offensive rebounding percentage. That is two games over a 38% offensive rebounding percentage by your opponent. That's not going to get it done. They are going to put up a ton of points on you. The Knicks were a top five offense last year, sheerly based on their offensive rebounding ability. They were a terrible effective field goal percentage team, could not shoot at all, but still made it into the top five in offense, as we all know, via their offensive rebounding, getting extra chances. You can't have professional basketball teams in the NBA getting extra shots, whether they're making their shots or not, if they have two chances at it <laughs> or three chances in some cases, they're going to score. They're going to score. All teams are going to score, even the worst ones. The rebounding has been the primary concern for me because I just feel like that's the biggest correlative for them with defensive success here so far in this, uh, this season because there's not really any other difference between this Knicks defense and last year's Knicks defense, which wasn't very good. I mean, it was okay, but not one of the better defenses in the NBA. The real difference between them is the fact that the Knicks have gotten defensive rebounds, and, and they, they haven't been doing that of late, and it's been showing in the outcomes. So to me, that's the biggest thing that I'm seeing. In the last two weeks, and I tweeted about this, in the last two weeks, uh, which is a basically a six-game sample, the Knicks have the second-best offense in the entire league behind the Indiana Pacers. That's incredible. And they also have the sixth-worst defense in the entire league right in front of the Indiana Pacers. <laughs> you, that is not a team that you want to follow their model in terms of what, how many points they give up defensively. So I am similarly concerned about the defense. I agree, you know, Mitch is a, is a huge aspect of the defense that they want to play in terms of rim protection. Quickly, as you know, I agree with you entirely, is a huge part of what they want to do as far as rim protection and as far as keeping teams out of the paint. Um, but I, I just think rebounding is really where it's going to it's gonna make or break this Knicks team because I think there's only so much they can do with the scheme that they have. They're going to give up threes. We know they're going to give up threes. Um, if we look at frequency of three-point attempts by opponents, the Knicks are giving up their, – their opponents are taking 40% of their shots are coming from three is a better way of saying that. And it's almost the same as last year. Like, it is the same defense. It's, they're going to give up a ton of threes. It's just what's going to happen. The, the real make or break to me is the rebounding. And yes, you're right. Threes can be open. Threes can be well defended. There's different quality of threes. But to some extent, teams are going to get up threes because they're so uh, concerned with kind of trying to stop teams from getting into the paint and at the rim. If you're not getting those rebounds, you're going to get crushed if you're this Knicks team. So to me, that's, that's the main area of focus. And you, just to put a bow on this, you mentioned the transition defense. Oh, my God. That So I have a theory about this, and I'm curious what you think because I think you have a good eye for this stuff. 
I think that the transition defense was except was uh, outlier levels bad last night specifically because the Knicks were trying to replace Mitch's offensive rebounding collectively. So I, I look, I know the Knicks aren't exactly the best transition defense team, but I do think that Tibbs emphasizes it. Like if, if you were to group all of Tibbs's angry timeouts, I would guarantee that a high, the highest percentage of them come after giving up points in transition or like quick baskets off a make when you don't get that drives him up a wall more than anything else. I think maybe even more than passing up an open shot, honestly, like he hates that. And so I do feel like for the most part this season, the, the Knicks have been as good as they can be. Look, when you have Julius Randle on your team, you're just going to have lapses. That's, that's a thing. When Jalen Brunson is the only person getting back on defense, other teams are going to exploit that because he's small and he there's not much he can do in the paint. But relative to their personnel, I think the Knicks' transition defense had been fine up to this point, uh, up to last night in the season. I think they went into the game yesterday, last night, and they said, okay, offensive rebounding is a big part of our identity. Jericho Sims isn't Mitchell Robinson. We're, we're going to send more guys to the glass. And whether that was a coaching decision or a personnel decision – it seemed like there were more times where you found two, sometimes three guys below the line, but, but you know, but behind the 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 Raptors core guys. So when the ball didn't go to them, the Raptors would just have, you know, four on twos, five on threes relentlessly. And I did feel watching that it was like, why are all these guys going for offensive rebounds? That's not how they normally when it's not how the Knicks normally play. And I, I kind of want to give them a small break. And if it was just a, oh, well, we have – somebody's got to replace Mitchell Robinson's offensive rebounding. I think that's an incredible observation. And I feel like that is why, Jeff, that, you know, you have an amazing eye for the game and, and, and can pick up things like that in a live game. I really didn't notice it as much. But now that you say it, I'm recalling that that's definitely something that happened. And I think it's really interesting because – Knicks fans know the reason why the Knicks were have been able to have a really good transition defense and still get so many offensive rebounds is because they're they're getting offensive rebounds by a single person, a single player. It is Mitch Robinson down there getting and collecting offensive rebounds. You don't have to crash the boards and send a bunch of guys to the offensive boards in order and 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 potentially give up the risk of transition uh, a poor transition defense because you just have one guy who's doing it all on his own. Um, and I don't think it's a good option to try to replicate what Mitch does by sending two or three players to the offensive board. I, I, on top of that, I don't think it's necessary. Like you, you mentioned, the Knicks shot, the Knicks effective field goal percentage in last night's game was 70.3%. I don't think you don't need any offensive rebounds if you're shooting like that. And, and to be honest, of course, they're not going to do that all the time. But against Boston, they shot 60% or, or nearly 60% effective field goal percentage. Against Milwaukee, 54.2. That's like about league average. And the previous game against the other Toronto game, nearly 60% effective field goal percentage. They've been shooting really well. Like this is like this is outlier stuff for this Knicks team. This, this Knicks team does not shoot this well and score this efficiently almost ever. And they're doing it really like there's a big difference. There's a fundamental difference in terms of how this offense has been able to score relative to last year's offense in this game. You know, I, I there's, there's a, a specific player I want to talk about that we'll get into, but 
they are able to score efficiently uh, a lot more uh, consistently than they ever have in the past. And so I don't think they need quite as many offensive rebounds. The offensive rebounds are great. They've needed the offensive rebounds because they couldn't score with any level of efficiency last year. This year, there's a little bit of a difference there. And I, I, I love the offensive rebounding, but you do have to consider if you're just giving up transition opportunities to a horrible off- uh, half-court offensive team, it just doesn't make sense. Maybe against other teams who are not as bad in half-court. I guess how I think about it is for Toronto, the difference in the quality of looks that they're going to get in transition versus half-court there is such a wide disparity there that you almost have to just forget about offensive rebounding and keep them out of transition because they can't score effectively in the half court. You, you, you just have to live with whatever they do in the half court. Um, and to give up this number of points against a Raptors team, you know, 130 per 100 pace against a terrible offensive Raptors team, it just, it's just not going to cut it. So I, I think that's a great observation by you. I, what, what I wanted to mention um, and I'm interested where you come down on this because I you I have a feeling you'll disagree. I feel like I and I've thought this for a while. I, I honestly thought this when they first acquired him, and I've I've held on to this because it's like you know Mitch has been doing so well. He's been really dominant on the defensive end, especially this year, and with his offensive rebounding has become the Knicks' identity, as we all know. Are we positive? that Isaiah Hartenstein is not a better five and a better five for this team than Mitchell Robinson. Um, And I say on the offensive end, the ball, I think it just moves so much easier when Hartenstein is out there. Like passing to Mitch is the end of the possession. Like you pass it to Mitch, the possession's over. He's going up with it or he's turning it over. Whatever's going to happen. There's nothing else that's going to happen. There's no more actions that the possession's over now. Passing to Hartenstein, that could be the beginning of generating you know, an even greater advantage. And I, you know, his pinch post action, um, you know, the dribble handoffs that he does, uh, you know, his his movement on the pick and roll and be, being able to, to pass out of the short roll, these are all things that Mitch has no chance of doing. Like, he can't do. And I think just that versatility of skills that Hardenstein brings to the table, it makes the offense a lot more dangerous, and it makes guys on the Knicks Everywhere, uh, you know, uh, you know, a guy like Quentin Grimes, it makes him a lot more dangerous. Uh, even a guy like DiVincenzo, who has had some success, I think it makes him more dangerous. The guys who are on the weak side, they have an opportunity to be involved in the game because Hardenstein can be that connector. And with Mitch, he just can't. He just can't. And so all of his value comes offensively, in my opinion, from offensive rebounding. Like, I don't think he's the biggest lob threat in the NBA. I don't think he's as big a lob threat as... He has been in the past. Like his lift hasn't seemed like it's been there. Could be maybe he was having issues with the ankle before, um, you know, the, the inevitably he need he needed surgery. But I just think there's a big difference in terms of Harnstein and, and and Mitchell Robinson's impact on the offensive end. And then really quick on the defensive end, I was looking up a couple of uh, advanced metrics in terms of defense because I'm really trying to get a sense of like what is the impact defensively. Mitch, you know, is a tremendously impactful defender. Last year, defensive Raptor, um, one of the one-number impact metrics that's pretty good. Mitch, 2.3. Hardenstein, 3.0. This year, defensive box plus minus. Mitch, 0.7. Hardenstein, 1.4. Including looking at last year, defensive box plus minus. Mitch was a 1.4. Hardenstein was a 1.2. 
Um, defensive DPM or Darko, uh, daily plus minus. Mitch, 1.8. Harnstein, 2.2. Um, and we see similar things in EPM, defensive EPM. Uh, Mitch Robinson is a plus 2.2 this year. Harnstein is a plus 2.8. So actually, pretty much every impact metric likes Harnstein's defense over Mitchell Robinson's defense. And that is going to be too much for me to ignore. When I'm making this case for Hardenstein being a better offensive fit for the Knicks team, and the impact metrics make a case that he's also a better defensive impact player than Mitchell Robinson, which I think is like pretty staggering to to, to consider. So I know I dropped a lot on you, but I'm, I really want to get your – I was excited for the pod today because I wanted to get your feedback on this specific thing. Well, the good thing about data is it doesn't really care – how I feel watching the game, you know, I, I, I do trust my eyes, but I do think everybody has to have the humility to accept that you, even the best eye tests have to watch the games three, four times to catch everything that's going on in the court. There's so much happening in every single possession. It's just impossible to perfectly capture everybody's impact. I will say that, in all my time watching these two players defend, I find it hard to believe that the t- defensive impact is even close. Um, I don't. I, I think Hardenstein is much worse on the defensive glass. I think that matters and is probably being underrated um, by the impact data. I, I'm not sure. Maybe you can answer this, but I, I'm not sure how much defensive rebounding percentage and how well your team rebounds when you're on the court is factored into overall defense defensive impact um is it at all yeah it is so so i mean the different impact metrics obviously they're uh crafted with different um factors in mind but uh, most of these metrics are um top down right so they're not looking at any specific aspect of the game they're not looking at oh who rebounds better who f- generates more turnovers who is you know creating more steals or blocks or they're, they're just looking at overall like when you're on the court what is the effect that you have on your team's defense like uh, generally that's what they're trying to do some of them do and epm is one it does incorporate like play-by-play data it incorporates some of these aspects like you know team rebounding and all, all of those things um but at the same time the the primary thing that it's looking at is like what is the impact trying to assert like causality uh, as it relates to how your team plays defensively when you're on the court and you're right Mitch seems to have a much greater impact on the defensive boards than Hartenstein does. But I think there are other factors that are really difficult to consider. Um, For instance, Hartenstein seems to have a better impact on creating turnovers when he's on the court. Um, And he definitely has a, a stronger impact in terms of effective field goal percentage when he's on the court. Like for instance, if we just look at on off, Mitchell Robinson is in the 10th percentile in the NBA in terms of on-off effective field goal percentage. So teams are shooting 3.7% better in terms of effective field goal percentage when Mitch is on the court, whereas Hartenstein on the other end, teams are shooting 2.2 percentage points worse uh, in terms of effective field goal percentage when Hartenstein's on the court. So we don't give all of the, the, the causal responsibility to Hartenstein or Mitch in either of those cases, but it is something that you know, you could be, you could consider as offsetting the difference in defensive rebounding that we might see. The other thing I want to say just really quickly, I think some of this comes from the fact that 
Mitchell Robinson's defensive impact, I, I'm not sure if this is the case, and I, I, another thing I want your feedback on, it feels like his entire, almost his entire defensive impact is neutralized against a stretch five. Like, it, is it even worth having Mitch out there against a team like Boston? Like, I almost don't even know if it is, makes sense to play him against a team like Boston. Like, he, what impact does he have if he can't protect the rim, if he's playing drop against Porzingis, or he's just, like, lagging off of Porzingis and Porzingis is hitting open threes, and he can't protect the rim, and Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown can just attack our smaller defenders and get all the way to the rim, and Mitch is not there to do anything about it. Like, I don't – is it – what is his value in those circumstances? It's an indictment on Tom Thibodeau if Julius Randle doesn't play any center against the Boston Celtics specifically going forward. I don't care about any other matchup, even even the Bucks, because I know Brooke Lopez is great. I, I actually truly believe that Brooke Lopez can be guarded by a smaller defender. I, I know he has nice touch in the paint. I know he's kind of crafty. He's got the methodical back down and – you know, if he had R.J. Barrett or, you know, a smaller wing on him, I believe that Brooke Lopez could exploit that somewhat. And then also, even if you put Julius Randle on Giannis, I, I think Tibbs likes having Mitch waiting there at the rim because Giannis is so unbelievably overpowering at the rim. So I get the reasons that Mitch would need to be out there against the Bucks, even if Brooke Lo- even if even if he's a non-factor against Brooke Lopez as a stretch five. The Celtics have none of that. They don't have anyone who gets to the rim. They want to shoot all the threes. Joe Missoula is like, he's D'Antoni and Harden, but more. All he wants is to shoot threes. He's you if you were a coach. Like, yeah, I feel like Missoula like Missoula is like a dumber you. You know, like that, <laughs> that's... <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, although I would make better, uh, better uh, late game decisions than he does, I, I think. Well, I mean, you would just play Derek White 48 minutes a night until he got hurt. So, like, <laughs> the Celtics would be the best team ever until Derek White's legs fell off. Um, <laughs> the Celtics don't have anybody who gets to the rim all the time. There's no – Tatum, their best player, he could get to the rim more. He loves the mid-range. He loves shooting pull-ups. He just – for whatever reason, he sees himself as Kobe Bryant. Like, that's – he's talked about it. He wants to be Kobe Bryant. He wants to have the craft from mid-range. They, they don't have anyone trying to get to the rim over and over again. They're going to shoot a lot of threes. And then the second part is Porzingis doesn't hunt offensive rebounds. Like the, the Celtics got offensive rebounds, but they got them because you're more likely to get offensive rebounds off threes than closer shots. And it was their guards being in the right spot. I remember I saw this really great article about how the Heat exploited the Knicks on the offensive glass in the, in the, play, in the postseason series against the, uh, against the Knicks last season. And what they did was they figured out that the most likely spot for an offensive rebound to go on three pointers is around the free throw line. And somebody put together a video montage of the heat players, not going into the paint for offensive rebounds, but running to that exact spot to like the elbow, the free throw line extended and just continuously getting offensive rebounds in that spot. And what that does is not only does it make you more likely to grab the rebound, cause that's where the ball is going to go but it also doesn't leave you completely out of position when you don't get the offensive rebound. So it's, it's a do du- it's a dual purpose. The Celtics do that. You saw Derek white, you saw other guys going to that spot and getting offensive rebounds. Mitchell Robinson doesn't really have anything to do with that. So his boxing out isn't helping there. His rim protection really doesn't matter against Boston. You need five switchable defenders who can take away. 
to take away the three point line. And guess what? Porzingis, as tall as he is, the Knicks defended him at the, the Knicks were at their best defending him when they just fully switched. Jalen Brunson got multiple stops on Porzingis because all Porzingis tries to do is turn around and shoot over you, no matter who the defender is. RJ Barrett got a stop in isolation against Kristaps Porzingis. His few misses came in one-on-one against smaller uh, defenders. So again, you don't need Mitchell Robinson's size against Porzingis. There's pretty much no reason for him to be out there. He and, and the last thing I'll say about Mitch is on the other side of the glass, some people might say, oh, well, we still need his offensive rebounding. The Celtics have a 7-3 dude who's good at defending and good at boxing out. So they kind of have an answer for Mitch on that side of the glass. Is he still going to get his offensive rebounds? Of course he will. He's the best offensive rebounder in the NBA. But it's not some outlier level exploitation the Knicks are getting here. It's his usual offensive rebounding impact. I think all the other areas where you're gaining an advantage by putting Randall at the five and having four shooters around him and four switchable defenders around him to match the Celtics speed and desire to shoot threes, you're more than making up what Mitch gives you as an offensive rebounder. So look, he's not going to get benched. I don't think that's realistic. I, I, I just, in today's NBA, I, I don't think many teams would do that. I would not hold Tom Thibodeau accountable for not benching Mitchell Robinson and giving him zero minutes, but I will hold him accountable or I will, however I can, I'll talk about him on a podcast, you know, like I'll do, I'll I'll do what I can to say, look like Julius Randle playing zero minutes at the five is hurting the Knicks. And I disagree strongly with anybody who thinks that's wrong because Frankly, I don't think the Knicks have much of a chance if they play 48 minutes against the Celtics with Mitchell Robinson or Isaiah Hardenstein on the court at all times. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And I mean, the only thing I, I disagree with is, you know, Porzingis is one of the most efficient post-up players in the NBA. So Porzingis can hurt you with his post game against smaller players. At the same time, I would live with that for sure over what Boston really wants to do, which is jack up like 45% of their shots from three. If, so, the, if the Celtics want to go away from their base offense and feed Chris Epps Porzingis in the mid post against RJ Barrett or even Jalen Brunson, that's a win. It just yeah, is. Agreed. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I, I, I totally, yeah, we're in agreement on that. Um, it is just to say that, you know, that is a team where pick your poison is, you know, none, none of the poisons are nice. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, um, but yeah, I, you got to go with the, the least of all evils in that situation. Um, so, but really my point with this is not saying that, you know, Mitch should be benched or anything like that in, in those situations. I'm just saying he plays so much in these kinds of situations that I think when you average it out over, you know, a set, if he plays 70 of the 82 games, you know, on on balance, his impact is going to be intensely high against certain teams that he matches up well against, and then potentially negative or not very good on teams that he doesn't match up well against. And that'll balance out to having an impact that is going to be less than you might think it would be. And Hardenstein, I think, has fewer of these like really like great disadvantages against certain teams and really great advantages against other teams. And he's kind of just like he just brings what he brings against whoever he plays. And to me, that's why when you look at averages or 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 rates across an entire league, 
they look pretty similar in terms of the impact that they're having on a defensive end. Hardenstein's not going to reach the Mitchell Robinson heights, but he's probably not going to reach the Mitchell Robinson lows against a team like Boston or another team that's playing five out. Obviously, Boston is is the one that comes to mind as the most uh, you know aggressive example of that. But so that's kind of what I'm thinking as far as is it possible that Hardenstein is good enough defensively that he you know can match on average the output that Mitch does with regard to impact on the defensive end and I think he's just clearly a a much more impactful offensive player in terms of getting better shots for the Knicks team and and being able to score more effectively on their first shot and I don't know you know it's 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 really hard to say this but I don't know if Mitchell's uh, his shortcomings as far as being you know like a like a dead end when it comes to an offensive player if that is more than enough surpassed by that what he brings as on the offensive rebounds like I, it's really hard to say it's such a difficult thing to compare and that's why I love impact metrics because they do not care about your style they don't care about the how they don't care about they just care about what is the impact that you're having and I, I really love top-down um, metrics for that reason because you can compare different styles and just have a real sense of like what the impact is regardless of how the player is doing it so to me I, I put a lot of weight in that when I see something where essentially every metric across the board is in agreement on something I think that's very difficult for me to ignore and yeah in this case I'm not sure in my opinion I, th- I, I lean towards Hardenstein actually being a better center for this team um, but I can understand with people pushing back, given, you know, we watch Mitch Robinson offensive rebound like a beast and be a monster on the defense uh, so frequently. But that, that that's kind of where I'm at at this stage. I just want to say that, and this is probably a better conversation for another day because we could, I'm sure you'll disagree. And we could, you know, go back and forth on this forever. And I'm sure I'd ultimately be like, you know what, you're probably right. But um when you say that you like top-down analytics and you like them because, you know, they don't care about how you play, I do think you'd get a lot of pushback there because basketball isn't baseball. Like there is a, there is a, 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 there is chaotic, there is chaos and there's randomness and, you know, how player A plays affects how player B plays. And so, very rarely does basketball occur in a vacuum. The style with which how you play has to matter and how you're uh, producing your impact or your output, it shouldn't be ignored in my opinion. And I think the Mitch Hardenstein example that you brought up is kind of a really good example of it because I think that in a vacuum, it's pretty clear that Mitchell Robinson is the better basketball player. Like, if you stuck Mitchell Robinson on 30 teams right now, I think Mitch would be more valuable than Hartenstein on almost every single one. But I think there's a really, I think we're in a really unique situation here where the Knicks have an assortment of players, especially in their starting lineup, where despite the Knicks head coach's best intentions, Mitchell Robinson is kind of being suppressed because you know, they don't have this great creator that's going to get into the paint and elevate Mitch's ability to impact as a scorer. They don't, um, he's relied on too much as a help defender. 
And he's not really allowed to impact defensively on the ball as much, you know, like other coaches might use him in a switch heavy defense that, you know, I think Mitch's impact goes up tremendously if the Knicks are switching across the board, if I'm being honest, because I think that wings hunt switches. I think Mitch would be able to hold his own. I think we'd be talking about him in a completely different light if all of a sudden you saw him getting switched on to Jason Tatum, those guys, and he was able to show his stripes there. Do I think he'd be a lockdown wing defender? Of course not. But my point is, is that that's a way that he could produce a little bit more impact as a defender that he's just not being allowed to right now because the Knicks are like, well, you're on the court with Jalen Brunson all the time, and if we switch everything, Brunson's just going to get hunted. That's literally why they don't switch. Um so I do think that in a strange way, and this is very strange because gun to my head, I would say that Tibbs's goal is to build around Mitch's strengths on both ends. Like he's like, okay, we're going to get a lot of offensive rebounds and we're going to keep guys away from the rim. In theory, both of those things are ideal for Mitchell Robinson, but I think the team is actually catered a little bit more to Hartenstein's overall strengths than Mitchell Robinson's. And what he's allowed to do within the realm of this team helps elevate his impact more more than uh Mitchell Robinson's yeah I I so I think that's totally fair I mean let me clarify my my position really quick so it's not that to me the styles don't matter I'm not making the case that the styles don't matter I'm making the case that it's extremely difficult to parse out how the styles matter because of all the intricacies that you mentioned so I think the styles are completely relevant, but like, how do we compare two different players who play at two different styles? We it, It's very difficult to do that because how each individual plays affects everyone around them and affects the entirety of the offense and defense and how they flow and how they mesh together. All of those factors are impossible to, not, I wouldn't say impossible, very difficult to parse out. So I'm not saying, oh, the style doesn't matter. I'm saying if I want to compare these two players and make it sort of apples to apples I have to look top down I can't look bottom up because I can't I can't make a comparison like that I can make a top down comparison I can say on average here's the impact that this player has on this end on average here's the impact that this player has on this end and I can compare those two players directly that way that's that's the case that I'm making not that styles don't matter right like in baseball the amount that a home run is better than a double is pretty easy to parse out it's stable exactly But like comparing the impact of three-point gravity to rim protection is like it's like speaking two different languages 100 percent. yes that's a great analogy and i that helps elucidate it better for for our audience i think but yes that's exactly what i'm saying um and, and, and honestly styles probably matter the most in a playoff series so i really my my kind of reliance on on impact metrics and analytics reduces in playoff series i would say and i think you know a lot of these these organizations that that kind of crunch the numbers and generate impact metrics some of them don't even do playoff impact metrics the sample sizes are too small the 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 circumstances the context are are weird where you're just playing the same team over and over again um you can get a little bit of a sense of the impact that players are making are are having but like it's not super it's 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 really not super descriptive um, but like, for instance, if the Knicks played the Cavs in a series, I would say, you know, Mitchell Robinson should play a ton. He would be really important in that kind of series. If the Knicks played the Celtics in a seven game series, I would say Mitchell Robinson probably should not play very much. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think that that is, that matters a lot more for a playoff series than across 82 games when it's just like, 
on average, here's the impact that these players are having. So uh, this is not to say, and I I guess it's probably, I'm I'm trying to be self-aware here. It probably sounds like I'm like anti-Mitch in some way. I love Mitchell Robinson. I think Mitchell Robinson's an incredible player, a unique player in the NBA. I think his impact is tremendous. I agree with you, uh, what, what you said, Jeff, where if he was on, you know, any other team, he'd probably have a greater impact than Isaiah Hardenstein, aside from like a few and I, I think he's tremendously undervalued as a player, but I also think that Harnstein brings a lot to the table that seemed to work really well for this team as far as, you know, an, an offensive, sorry, an offensive lubricant for, uh, for, for this team. And I think, I think that, I think this team with, with Randall and Brunson and RJ, I think this team does need an offensive lubricant, if you will. I do think that Mitch would have a higher lube than Hardenstein though. That that I I I wouldn't think so. No, I wouldn't think so. Well, wait. To be clear, we decided that lube is. Oh, I forgot how we how we how we define lube, which is like what of your impact comes from you, not from your usage, right? Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. In that case, yes, because Mitch has no usage, right? Correct. Like all yeah. of his impact <laughs> comes from outside of his usage. Yeah, yeah, Mitch would have Mitch would lead the league in lube if that if that's how we defined it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Mitch uh, would be Mitch would be the lube king. Um, <laughs> I was wondering what, yeah, I, I saw your brain working and like trying to figure out what Mitch's title would be. And I didn't think Lube King was coming, but I'm glad that's what came out as opposed to something else. <laughs> uh, you're giving my brain a lot, of, a lot of credit there. That came out, that came out in like six seconds. Uh, you, must, you must think pretty highly of my processing speed. 